you understand this. So you think about a five or six year period that you're exposed to market change, interest rate change, recession, all sorts of risks. That's a long time to not have the puzzle tied up in a tight little bundle, a long time. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. If you're a broker or anybody out there that knows of a class B industrial building for sale, we wanna hear from you. Our criteria is that we hope that it's between 10 and $75 million in total purchase price. Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including an additional bonus, the ability to co-invest, a piece of the upside, and exclusive partner trips. Last year, we went to Lajitas and we went to Las Vegas, and it was a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there this year. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Bo, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I'm excited for today's conversation. It's my pleasure. And I am as well. Bo, let's get started with kind of your uh, background and how you got into the real estate industry. I grew up more, more or less in Greenville, which is where I live now. Um, I moved here when I was seven. My mother was from here. So uh, went to school through the public school systems here, then went to the Citadel in Charleston. And school was a constant struggle for me. I, I, you know, they didn't call anybody by acronyms back then, so, so they, they just said I was hyper. <laughs> but I knew I, I knew I couldn't listen <laughs> in school. I would set out to pay attention to a teacher or a professor once I got to college, and 10 seconds later, my, I would be fishing in my mind or whatever. And so, I mean, finishing school was difficult. And uh, and I didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished. I thought about law school, but my, my uh, distaste for school precluded that in my mind. So I ended up, um, I was home hunting my senior year with a friend who's uh, seven years older than me. And he asked me what I was going to do when I finished. I said, you know, I got no idea. And he said, well, you can come to work with me. And I said, what do you do? He said, I sell real estate. I said, okay. And so I asked him about that a little bit. And that's the first time I understood what commissions were. And because I, I, I was not on, I did not have a W-2 other than college summer jobs until 17 years in business. Mm. Um, so at any rate, I got, I got started in the real estate business out of absolute default. That's what I would say. Were you selling sure re default. residential or commercial? Anything, honestly, because <laughs> land, uh, I mean, really, because the market was of such size that you 
nobody, it wasn't large enough to specialize in, unlike a Dallas or uh, Atlanta. I mean, literally, I sold, the first sale I made was a house. The second was a piece of land and, and anything in between, because that was just the scale of things. Yep. You know, I've had a lot of folks on the the, the podcast, but a lot of them are um, from more recent, um, uh, you know, <laughs> generations. Let's put it that way. I'm going to say it in a nice way. And that's why I'm excited about today, because I think a lot of folks are going to learn something today. But but what you, that was re- really delicate. That was delicate. That was really delicate. I, I've yeah. learned how to ease into those. <laughs> OK, this is interesting. So 72 was my first year in business. All right. Um, and I made, I, I just for commissions again, I, I remember I made like $10,300, which doesn't sound like much today. And it wasn't that much then, but it was, I was, I was pleased that the next year I made three times that. Yeah. And I saw this meteoric rise to stardom. You know, humility comes in large and small doses. This was a large dose. So I got married. 13 months later, my first child was born. And what's called the OPEC oil embargo mm. occurred. And I went, I went 14 months and I made zero. Nothing. It was difficult, obviously. Yep. But it's the best, th- best thing that ever happened to me in retrospect. It sure didn't feel like it at the time. So. Well, I wa- Okay, then let's stay on that for a second because you just nailed it. Sure. So what year did the embargo happen? And can you take me back to what your mind was like when you were at the top of your game making triple the money and then all of a sudden down to zero? Like how quickly did it happen? Walk me through that. Uh, that that's a good question. So it, you started to sense it in the summer of 74. Okay. Um. And specifically, I would say 74, 75, because the first, the first paycheck I drew in 14 months was December 31st of 1975. Okay. And so my wife and I, had, I remember going to, being able to go to the store, buy hamburger meat and cook outside with neighbors was a big deal. Whereas I'd, I'd grown up playing golf. I'd been able to go to the country club. Um, I was, you know, a fortunate kid. All of that um, was not possible. I mean, I, I couldn't afford each night, each month. I would get my bills paid, and you know, in the commission business, you know whether you've got a fee forthcoming or not within the next ninety days or one hundred and twenty days. And I knew. I had no income. So I would get my bills paid one month and you would think that would be a huge relief. And it was, it was actually just the opposite I, because I knew I didn't have any income for the next month. Then I would lie there and think, what am I going to do next month? Yeah. How am I, how am I going to pay my bills next month? And I remember thinking you like this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I'm not 40 and going through this. Yeah. That was that was a distinct thought in my mind. And now I'd, you know, whatever I've made since then, I'd give to be 40 again, but that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So it, it was a, it was a very humbling experience, but it changed my perspective. As I said, it's probably in terms of business, the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it gave me an appreciation of risk 
um, that I wouldn't have otherwise had, honestly. Can you maybe lean in even further? Like, what does risk mean to you now that you've been something from there? Because I think a lot of, and, and look, I started in 05, but I was in college buying rental houses. So I went through one cycle, but I didn't have a ton of assets and a company and lots of employees. So I remember what right. 0809 felt like. But can you describe, you know, from that embargo in that year, like what does risk mean to you that maybe when you look at younger generations now, you're thinking they don't have a clue? Ooh, here's what I would say. So the reality is, I mean, my family was by no means um, destitute, but nor were they um, wealthy. So and when you're young, you take risk beyond your capacity to absorb absorb them in an extreme downturn. And the OPEC oil embargo was an extreme downturn. 81 was an extreme downturn when when the prime rate at 21 and a half. Mm. And so you're taking risks early in your career that you cannot digest if you do have, unless you're very fortunate, fortunate, um, if you do have an extreme uh, recession. And so I I took risk after 74, 75 that I probably could not have digested had I had another 14 months without income. Um, but I tried to, I tried for them to be calculated as much as, as was possible since then though. And I don't know if I had to put a, put a date on it, I would say, well, I I was involved in a successful, in relative terms, a very successful development about 79, 80. And so I made enough money then that I tried to never take another risk that could fully deplete my reserves, if you will. Yep. And, si- and since then, I really do. I look at when I look at uh, because the hotel business is is not exactly risk free, <laughs> as you as you understand, yeah. and it's COVID evidence well. But if things if there is a, a significant downturn, I want to be able to um, absorb those those losses by reserves that I have on hand. Right. So that's, I mean, that's kind of a simple description, but that, that has been my approach to risk since then. And, and you've been through several cycles at this point. You mentioned earlier that kind of (laughs) sense that you, you could sense it coming in the summer of 74. When you think back on some of these cycles, 08, uh, 99, 81, 74, were they all, did they all come 01. in the same? Oh, one. Did they all come <laughs> in the same fashion? Um, could you sense you them know, all coming, or did they all come at, uh, unexpectedly? Honestly, you do develop a sense of things, and and I would say that, and I'm not a soothsayer, um, but in every one of those instances, and I can name them all, I had a, a sense of them forthcoming yeah and you know you can't avoid them as you know right but you can be a little more prepared and you can reduce the risks that you expose yourself to in anticipation of those downturns yep. i was really fortunate guys i told you we had a good development project in the very late uh 70s early 80s and it, it was a good one um it was a lot development project but i'd also gotten into at the request 
of of a guy um, who was a Section 8 apartment developer. I'd gotten in the securities business only because that licensing was required. So I was I got an NASD broker dealer license. So I was selling tax shelter real estate in the late seventies and early eighties, and that gave me um, a source of income that was that even during eighty one was a steady uh, flow of flow of commissions. Yeah. So that helped as well. Yeah. But I mean, I sensed like like I remember early in 07 saying to the guys here, I said. This is, we had a bank that made a presentation to us on a loan. And when, when they finished, I said, because it was extremely uh, uh, competitively priced uh, in terms and in rate. And I said, when, you, when you're offering that kind of loan to us, it tells me I need to be very aware of what's happening because it was the deal was too good. Yeah, it was a, it was a better and it was all that capital as you as you recall all that capital from every source chasing deals. Right, be it be it banks, be it buyers, be it developers, lenders of all sorts as you as you know. It just gives you you know it it, it makes you cautious because you've seen it before. I don't want to spend the whole time on downturns, but I think it's just fascinating. Um, when it starts to unravel, what is the chain of events that usually happens? Banks stop lending, investors stop, you know, putting money into deals. Like from your sense, like what what are the things that happen on the way down um, that that make the market kind of clinch up and stop? That's a good question, um, and it's and it's varied because. I'm not. I'm not avoiding your your question. I'll I'll answer it. But it it you know some have occurred so rapidly, and others have, uh, have sort of you've in, eased into the uh, the downturn itself. And I think the breadth, the depth and breadth is what that's the big unknown. You know, I, I say that good times make for bad decisions, and I believe that's true. Bad times make for opportunity, and if you had, um, if you had the wisdom and the insight to see the end of the downturn, you would have the and, and had the capital. You would have the courage to make investments that are very opportune. Um, the problem is, it's hard to see that. It's hard to know the end or the depth. So here's the way I think of it. There was the OPEC oil embargo. There was 81. And then what happened was you had, starting in about 83 or 4, you had, is it related to my broker-dealer business? You had the rumor of, of what was the 86 Tax Reform Act. And that sucked the tax benefits out of real estate, really. It, it, it is, in my opinion, the single cause or the primary cause of uh, the SNL debacle, which was, you know, not, not 89 to 91, call it. Um, the tech bubble in 01, I mean, that was, that happened, you know, that came on very rapidly. So each situation in 07, it, that extended so long that there was, it, there was, you know, there was so much pain for so many. 
Um, each one was different. Each each one had had its own characteristics. Yep. Um, and so how, how you prepare what you see varied, honestly. Yeah. But uh, obviously, um, you're trying to figure out, all right, how, how do I get to the other side of this? And you don't know when the other side is. Um, what, what is it going to do in terms of depletion of reserves? Because you don't know how deep it would go. Right. We were so fortunate in our hotels in in the Great Recession. Um, I've never really liked that term, but it was it was a pretty damn great one, um, <laughs> large one. I mean, anyway, you slice it. We we did not have a a single hotel that did not have positive cash flow, which is amazing to me. Now, <laughs> the cash flows had gone down significantly. Right. And so that was that was my greatest source, uh, personal source of of income. So it, it was reduced, but it was not it didn't go away. And that was very unusual. Most of my period, we were we were fortunate. We had really good hotels and and, and good small drive to markets. Um, most of my peers, my friends in the hotel business, uh, that wasn't their experience. They had. You know, they had they had they were feeding hotels. We never had to feed a hotel. We we actually did have cash flow. So yep. I'm not sure I answered your question, but they all they all are different. And so trying to sense what the opportunity is, each one felt different too. Yeah. Even though you might have sensed it coming, that that's what I would say. Okay. Well, I'm not asking you to sense anything, but are you sensing anything? Yeah, I mean it, it. It's not a comfortable time, I mean, um, you know, from inflation, obviously, which we had hyperinflation in the in the mid seventies and eighty. I mean, literally. I mean, LIBOR didn't exist in the early eighties, but you think about the prime rate at twenty one and a half, or or a home mortgage in uh, in the fourteen to fifteen range. Take the impact of that and filter it through the economy today and think about the impact it would have. Yes. And then, then you take the geopolitical risks. It's not a comfortable time now. Yeah. I don't know how it can be. When rates went to 21%, where were they before and what happened? I mean, did literally everybody stop borrowing almost immediately on new loans? Yeah. I mean, that sounds so you know, foreign as we sit here today. Well, here's what so in in the OPEC oil embargo, I don't think the prime rate had ever been above three. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I think that's correct. And the prime hit twelve, I believe it was in seventy five. Was that that was unheard of? And so, you know, some people who had debt, um, they had no choice. I mean, the debt was getting adjusted to the to the prime rate because there there were. There was so much debt that was that was uh, variable, so people people's disposable income was either hugely diminished or they were reaching into reserves, um, and and then so so eighty one when inflation, which is what we're certainly seeing today, I don't remember what inflation hit, but I believe it was a double digit. Number um, 
the, the prime goes to 21 and a half. There were people that had to borrow. Um, and there were companies that had to issue debt. It wasn't a choice they had. And so you suck when, when that much of your uh, income is going to service debt. It impacts everything. Disposable income, certainly for the consumer. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, people had, had, uh, were at ages where they, they've had, had, had to might be an overstatement, but buy a house. And I've got a, a young guy that works with me. Young is relative, Chris. He's probably about your age. And so his dad is an old friend of mine. And I remember him saying he had to borrow, he borrowed on his house, new mortgage. He'd bought a house at 14 and a half percent. And so you, you'll like this story. This is a little long, but it's, so having come out of that, there's a great book, by the way, called Psychology of Money. And if you hadn't read it, read it, read it. It's a great book. But he, and he's got 20 chapters and, and they're very defined as to, as to what they're addressing. And, um, and he talks, one, one of them is about the time in which you, you, you the formative years from a business standpoint, um, in, in which, which you were exposed to. So I remember thinking, if I can, having come through 75 and then 81, if I can finance a deal in single digits, so below 10, I'm going to lock it in. <laughs> I'm going to lock it in. So we, we did. This is a great story. I could write a, a book on this. If I took this single hotel from start to finish, I could write a book. But I'll give you the, the short version. So we did a hotel in Columbia, South Carolina. It was um, built in response to an RFP. It was uh, to be the convention center hotel in Columbia. It's a Hilton. It's got a roost, Chris, in it. It's a great hotel. We went through all sorts of uh, battles to get it done. But it was. It's in the, the location is in what's called an empowerment zone. So the empowerment zone enabled us to issue tax-exempt bonds to finance the hotel. I've never done that before. I've not done it since either. So our <laughs> our <laughs> our pay rate on the on interest rate was seventy-five percent. Excuse me, seventy percent of LIBOR variable. So LIBOR was at five and a half, roughly. Our, our interest rate was 3.7 the day we closed the loan, closed the bonds. So I had the option to swap all or part, including none, of that, of that issue. And this was north of $20 million. Um, I chose, because the deal worked economically, and this gets a little bit back to risk, um, the deal worked economically at 3.7%, 70% of LIBOR. So I swapped for 10 years, I swapped the whole issue, fixing my rate effectively at 3.7%. There were some other costs related to it, remarketing fees and other things that, that the largest of which was in order for the bonds to be marketable, we had to have a bank letter of credit. So we had a letter of credit from SunTrust, which had a, an expense attached to it, about 75 basis points. 
And then we had what was called a remarking fee. So our all-in rate was about, call it, call it four seven five. Um, but I locked in that ten year. I mean that uh, three seven the issue for ten years. So after that, you will recall that LIBOR was as low as twenty five basis points. Mm. Had I floated that issue, had I con- had I chosen to float it rather than fix it through swapping it. I would have been paying about 18 basis points versus <laughs> versus 375 basis points. But again, I was risk adverse. The deal worked at 3.7. I wanted to fix it. And I had come, I'd grown, you know, my business life, I'd been exposed to those two extreme interest rate events, mid-70s and early 80s, where I was going, you know, it, it was, to me, it wasn't even an election. But think about that. Oh, yeah. 18 basis points. First, uh, you got it. That's like free money. <laughs> That's like free money. I've never gone back to, to figure out because it doesn't matter. Uh, and that's passe. We've refinanced that hotel. But that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. <laughs> All right. We're going to get into hotel development, but I just want to I want to ask one more kind of question on this interest rate spike. Sure. When it went to 21 and a half percent prime. And and again, I've I'm only looked at charts. I obviously didn't live this, but the chart looks like it went up really quick and down really quick. It did. So, can you remember exactly how long rates stayed there and what was happening when things were at 21 and a half because as we relate it to today where interest rates are moving up pretty quickly and the Fed has kind of made a little bit of a a uh, announcement that they don't plan on stopping Statement. until things uh, taper down. What happens in that two, three, four, six month window? Well, if it's if it's only that long, we'll be fortunate. It would be I'd preface okay what two I'm years ready to say with that, yeah or yes. So, um, it, it, just think about it. It's simple. Be be it a company or a consumer, it, it is sucking as those rates rise. You're paying more for what you're buying, number one, but you're also the interest if you've got debt, which most people have some form of debt. Um, so it's really a double whammy, inflation and higher interest rates. Um, it sucks what you have the ability to do. Uh, it reduces it significantly. Right. How long it lasts, I, I think, um, personally, I think this is a longer term issue. I don't think it's a spike up and a, and a uh, precipitous drop back down, yeah. but I might be wrong. Yeah, uh, I, I will try to prepare for it as if it's not. But things kind of slow. I mean, they, when interest rates are, I can't imagine having to refinance a loan right now if rates shot up to 21%. I mean, basically you're toast. Because you've got... so. so uh, that's a really insightful statement because you do have, you've got, we have, anybody does this in, in our business, have, have loans that are maturing. And, and lenders may want out of those loans. And if they don't want out of those loans, they're certainly not going to renew them at the current rate. So if you have rates go from, let's say, we've got hotels financed at as low as about three, six. Fortunately, those are recent, so we don't have a near-term maturity, but we got some maturities coming up. And so 
you, you add 200, 300, 400 basis points to the interest rate, the debt service, the, what I used to call loan constant. These young guys look at me like they don't know what that is, but it's, it's a pretty good definition of, of what, what the debt costs you to, to have. I mean, you, you double your, your debt service. You know, you don't have to be real smart to figure out that does diminish your cash flow. Yeah, and and lenders are also, you know, lenders are when things when they don't things are unknown to them as well. They don't have soothsayers working for them either, and so um, they're more reticent to make loans. They're loaning uh, at a lower loan to value. Um, it's it makes for a difficult business environment. Yep, I don't care what your business is. Right. All right, let's pivot to hotels. God bless hotels, especially in America. <laughs> how did you get yeah. into hotel development? I know how you got into real estate, but how did you get into the, the world of hotels? I fly fished my way into ho <laughs> hotel business. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Um, so I, I do. I love to fly fish. And back in the uh, mid-late 80s, I, I was trout fishing a lot. And I was spending time. I've got a really close friend, and he's a business partner uh, in the hotels who lived in Jackson Hole. And so I was spending time out there. We had bought an interest. Don't ever do this, by the way. We had bought an interest in a uh, fly shop together, he and his brother, who's also a close friend of mine, and I. And so I was, I was out there enough where I thought, you know, I should be looking for some sort of business opportunity here. So Because even back then, you could sense that Jackson had some uh, energy to it. Um, and so I started looking around while I was out there. I was out there for a week fishing and found this piece of property that was owned by a doctor in New York. And I actually remember his name. And so I got his number from the bank, called him up. Um, I said, you've got a piece of property in Jackson that I would be interested in purchasing. And, and I really, we were doing more retail then. You know, development that we were doing would have been, I'd never done a hotel. Um, and he said, well, I've just given an option to a guy from California and he wants to build a hotel, but he doesn't have his equity together. And so I call, I got in touch with the guy, uh, the, the, who aspired to build a hotel and he was about 40% short on his equity. And so I borrowed on what's called a home equity loan. So that would have been in the late 80s. That probably, and my guess would be 8 or 9% was what. So I borrowed on my, my home equity loan, my house. Didn't make my wife very happy. But, <laughs> um, and then I got three buddies, uh, one, two, of, two of whom lived in Jackson. And together we put up the last 40%. So I really, the first hotel I was involved in, I was an investor. And we opened that hotel in May of 90. We, we built it as a day's end because days would give us some, we could get out of the contract uh, in a very short period of time, like 60 days, which is unheard of today. And our fee was 2%. So, and we thought we needed a brand, which we didn't at the time, honestly, in retrospect, we didn't need a brand, but th that hotel is a Hampton Inn today. So, we opened the hotel in May of 90, and we sold it in May of 94. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. And that 
the proceeds from that, my share gave me the ability to develop my first hotel, which also was a fly fishing experience. But <laughs> okay, how does how does developing a hotel work? Let's start with site selection as, and, and more to your strategy. I know there's all types of hotels, um, but maybe start with what are y'all really, uh, what's y'all's fastball and how do you look for locations that matter to you? We look at, at market opportunity first before we look for sites. Okay. Um, and so what, what, we have, what we have done best um, would be a, 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 a bullseye for us in theory, because, you know, theory doesn't always work out to be reality. You've been in the, I mean, the real estate business. But in theory, uh, uh, a city with an AC C or SEC school in it, a capital city that that didn't have when we really first started doing this, who had uh, a downtown was that was starting to see some renaissance, mm -hmm. but was not so far uh, down that road that the, that the great sites were gone. So we would try to find a market that uh, that had some underlying energy to it really you have local government whose vision was to make their downtown better cool that had a great school that's associated with uh with the city and 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 then we would try and if we had those ingredients we'd try to find a great site um and we were all we were brand aware then because we probably i'd have to go back and count but most of the early hotels we did were hampton inns and so if we could find a downtown that fed that fit into the uh what I just described that didn't have a Hampton in it, and we could find a great site, that was that was what we would have considered a bullseye. Not that every hotel we've done meets all of that criteria, but that's that was what we looked for. And so the exception to that, my first Hampton, the one that, that I was able to do. After uh, Jackson Hole, I was fly fishing in East Tennessee a lot, a lot. And, and I couldn't find a hotel room sometime. I thought, you know, you don't really need a market study. If you can't find a hotel room, it probably, if you build a hotel here, that'd be a good choice. So I called what was in Promise Hotels and ended up building a Hampton up there. And that was the first hotel that opened in, it opened June the 12th of 1995. That was the first hotel that that I developed from, from start to finish. Okay. So you, let's, let's say we found a market, a great SEC school to all my SEC listeners out there. <laughs> Bo's coming to a market near you, but we, we found a market that you can, you like, it's a government that's, you know, pro business pro. We want to have a great downtown pro. We're going to make this easy for you. Then what do you look for in a site? Does it have to be walkable next to water? Like what matters when you're selecting a site? It, it's market dependent okay. first, but um, you know, obviously, if you've got a river, you would like to be close by. You want to be walkable to um, entertainment, restaurants, and whatever. If if there is a particular activity that the the city or the town is known for, you'd like to be in close proximity to that. Okay. It's pretty straightforward. If, if When you think about a college town, and, and maybe I, the answer is very obvious, but who's your average guest? Is it 
parents coming in to see kids? Is it folks coming in to see games? Is it really seasonal or, you know, how do you think about who your guest is or does it vary throughout the year? It varies throughout the year. So, you know, a large school has a lot of people that call on them, have a lot of people that call on them. So um, you can do a, a, you can do a tremendous amount of school related business. That's not athletic. Um, that's not academic specifically, you know, because a, a large university uh, just attracts that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, your premium nights, which in some markets, I learned that in Jackson Hole, um, your premium nights can make a uh, an economic model work, whereas it wouldn't work otherwise. So football weekends for a big school, I mean, we, we've built, uh, we're in Columbia. We were in Tallahassee. We were in Gainesville, Florida. We're in Baton Rouge. As for instance, as Greenville um, is certainly Clemson impacted. Um, you get in probably 2012, 2013, we built a hotel in downtown Gainesville, Hampton Inn and Suites. Uh, we built it to own it, which is a long term, which has always been our objective um we sold it for a reason that doesn't matter but it was a great hotel but on a game day weekend we would get a three-night minimum at 450 dollars. that didn't happen i wish that happened every weekend but it only happened about six or seven a year so that those premium nights really um not that gainesville wouldn't work anyway because it has a significant medical presence um but they they can make they can make a hotel work that wouldn't otherwise work. And the best example of that, I used to resent, this goes way back, I used to resent people of whatever uh, business type who raise their rates, prices, um, when when there was peak demand. I used to think, that's crazy. Uh, that's, a, that's abusive. Well, what I learned in Jackson Hole was that had we not, we made 80% of our, 85% of our revenue in three months. Had you not been, and you at high rates, relatively high rates, today very high rates. Um, had, had we not done that, there wouldn't have been any hotels in Jackson. I had not thought through that whole equation. Right. So, um, but it's true. I mean, there's certain markets uh, that, that, that rates have to be high at peak season or there wouldn't be any supply. Um, it, it, we enjoy those peak nights. They certainly make our, uh, this, those high demand nights, they make our equation better. But we can't, we can't live off those. So schools, a big school generates a lot of different type of business, yep. in, including visiting teams, certainly, um, if that answers your question. Yeah. Do you try and sign like contracts with the schools to get a certain amount of business or you don't need to do that? We don't do that. Okay. Uh, to my knowledge, and, and, you know, there may be somebody in our operations that would, uh, where we have a relationship. We certainly, uh, we, we do try to develop relationships with the athletic department or so, but it's not contractual. Right. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. 
We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we are able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. We saw this really big shift where, you know, today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested? And what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right, market site. Do you then call Hampton in and say, look, we selected this great market. We think we have the right site. We're going to go forward. Or do, like, do you have to select the brand before you start building the hotel or what's the order uh, that things happen? We would have a, we would have a brand in mind. We would look for an opportune market, but we would have a brand in mind. And so we would make a call to whichever, whatever company we were working with. And we thought that that the brand we had in mind was owned by. And that, that would take me, that'll take me down another road. But, um, and we would call and say, look, um, we've got a good site, great site in such and such a market. Um, and we're interested in do, building, let's say, a Hampton. Um, and they would say, well, we've already, we just signed a, a, a franchise agreement with somebody else or we're talking with somebody else or, or yeah, that's a good idea. So it could be a range of, of, answers but our our question would be brand specific and then if they if they are if there was somebody who was uh, ahead of us so to speak then but we had a great site and an opportune market then we we would shift brands yep what what risk are you taking and what risk are they taking Ooh. <laughs> i would say hot, hot question coming it, in uh, that's a good one, though. I mean, uh, today, us a lot. We, I mean, we take all the risks. Yeah. There. So, so I mean, Marriott's got, for instance, more than thirty brands. Um, and that that leads to all sorts of questions and answers. But they're 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 a franchise, as is Hilton. Um, they're a franchise company. They don't, you know, they're not in the real estate business anymore. They sold their hotels. So. They get paid at the top line level. They get paid a percentage of our gross revenue. We, on the other hand, as you understand, we've got to make money at the bottom line. That's the only way we make money. So we're investing our money to, to benefit them. They can mandate brand standards that add to our capital expense or our operating expense or both that benefit them, but cost us. So literally increase our capital expense and or 
decrease our net operating income, but increase the gross revenue, which is a, the metric off which they get paid. So I don't want to beat on up on the brands because they, you know, we've had great relationships with them. I've served on, I was chairman of uh, Hilton's Hampton Inn Brand Council for a long time. I've got a few good friends left there, but th- that's that's fact. And as as the brands have expanded in terms, if as the franchise companies have expanded with the uh, added number of brands, it it's diluted the uh, reservation system. It's diluted the affinity programs. So you know they would tell you that well, this brand, even though it's uh, X Y Z company. Um, same affinity program, same reservation system, basically. It's a different swim lane. Swim lane. Yep. I say it's a hotel. I mean, they're hotel rooms. So you get it. I get it. Okay. So you get it. Uh, when you're when you're designing and actually building the actual structure, and Hampton Inns already said, "Hey, you know, we love your deal in Baton Rouge. We're in." Do you have to build the actual structure to their specs or you can build it to any spec you want? Or there's just a, a is there just a common spec that everybody knows is the right way to build it? So we, we have, as, as I alluded to earlier, we have built in urban settings. Urban settings not only uh, allow you more flexibility from the brand's perspective in terms of exterior design for certain and even interior design Mm -hmm. Um, because it needs to be cool. It needs to fit. And we, you know, if I had to throw out a percentage, we'd probably spend 15 to 20% more. Let's, let's use Hampton as an example on our Hampton than one that's out on the interstate because it needs to not look like a Hampton. It needs to feel like a boutique hotel. And if you look at our website, you you would not recognize any of our existing hotels as a prototype. Right. Yeah. But when you get in the room, things change. And we can get, you know, if we're if we're in a historic market, let's say, we can get um, case good exceptions that are befitting that market. You know, a dresser that looks antique. Mm. Um but but there are certain criteria, dimensional requirements that generally you have to adhere to. But we get a whole lot more latitude in urban settings than, and, and we pay for them, as I said, um, than a, a typical franchise may get. If you look on our website, you will not recognize any of the brands. If you just looked at them, didn't see the sign as being a Hampton or a courtyard or a residence. I mean, yep. Typically. Dumb question. What's, question. A, what's an affinity program? Uh, points. Okay. Everybody's a points junkie. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, um, you know, if you've got, if you've got three hotels in a market, that are drawing on that are that if you stay there, you get Hilton honors points, then that makes those points very valuable. And I'm not beating up on Hilton, but I'm the, just yeah. as an example. But if there are eight hotels 
that are all in honors that dilutes the benefit. Got it. You get it. All right. The building is being close to completion. Let's say we're we're completed. The physical structure's done. Are you buying all the furniture or is the hotel or is the brand putting in all the furniture? Uh, we buy it all. Okay. Uh, we, we 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 hire an ID. Now now there are again, you know, there's some requirements, brand standards that we adhere to, some particularly in the room, more in the room than in the lobbies, in the public space. Yep. And it really depends on the box, but uh, we'll we'll have an interior designer who has done Hamptons or Hilton's or Courtyards or whatever before, so she knows standards. And there and those the really good ones are in close co- close contact and have friends at the brand level who are in charge of, of interior design. So we we will typically have a company that does our ID. And that company may or may not do the purchasing for us. Sometimes they do. uh, Or sometimes we hire a company to do the purchasing. There's certain certain items that flow through. Hilton has a Hilton supply. So there's certain items that flow through Hilton supply. And theoretically, they're price advantaged. But... Very little of that is on the front end of the hotel. It's more sheets, towels, pillow, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. It's not bad to be Hilton, is it? Not just Hilton. I don't want to be, beat up on Hilton because Hilton has been very good to me. And and the only hotel that we, well, we're actually working on two deals right now. We just started construction on one. Both of them are Hilton brands. Yep. So, uh, no, it's, but the answer to your question, no, it's not. So, in, in all honesty, and I think any anybody in my business who's been in it a long time um, would would say this. It feels to me that we were we were once the franchise company's partners. We were their partners. We were developing their product. I think our relationships as they have sold their real estate, uh, no longer hotel owners, you know, their allegiance, and you, you understand this, is to the, the shareholder. Um, so next quarter's earnings feel more important than uh, the relationship of uh, franchisee. Yep. That's a pretty strong statement, and, and I really don't, but it, it's, it's true. That's the way it feels. Yeah. All right. A couple more things. Uh, and then I want to get into a few more topics, but, uh, last question on hotels. And I think you've kind of already answered it, but what now that we're built fully furnished, we're opening for business. What is Hilton providing you? What are you paying for? I I know you're paying for a booking system, which is huge and marketing. What else are you paying for? Is that it? They do. Uh, we pay for national advertising. We pay into, I think the current rate with Hilton is 4%. So 4% of our revenue goes into um, a marketing fund. That the, the affinity program is within that fund. I believe that's correct. My operations people could answer these questions better than, than I can. Um, but they also, they have national relationships, Hilton does, with let's say IBM or 
Microsoft or whomever. And so in a market, they can give us penetration to those users, guests, um, that we would, it may take us a very long time to, if we could at all, develop that ourselves. So that would be an example. We don't have to spend too long on this. Um, You know, we've talked about inflation. Construction's kind of tough right now. What do you You think? Yeah. I haven't met anybody building anything right now that uh, has said it's a walk in the park. It's never been a walk in the park, but especially right now. Uh, Anything that just comes to mind when you think about building right now? um, What are y'all doing to, to stay on top of your game? The hotel we just started, we started working on. We bought, we optioned the site four and a half years ago. That's a long time. And you think about now that 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 is an inordinately long time. And there are circumstances that cause that to extend longer than normal. But it wouldn't be unusual at all for me to start working on a deal, you know, conceive an opportunity. And it'd be five or six years before that hotel opens. Um, and I'm going to get to your specific question, but you understand this. So you think about a five or six year period that you're exposed to market change, interest rate change, recession, all sorts of risks. That's a long time to not have the puzzle tied up in a tight little bundle a long time. So um, in in this case, you know, construction, the project that I'm referring to, our construction contract is at about 170% of our original budget. And rates have not gone up 170%. yeah. Uh, hotel rates. Now, we think, obviously, we think it's an opportune market. We've always done what I call heads up deals. So, my partners are invested on the very same basis that Bo is invested. Um, and so, I'll put up my share of the equity. They put up their share of the equity. I guarantee my share of the debt. They guarantee their share of the debt. And my partners are, you know, my buddy, my fishing buddies or my hunting buddies. So they're not institutional, that's my point. Right. The the project I just described to you is the first project that we would we've ever done, hotel project, that there's what I would call any sort of promotion to. And and so uh, we have some local, a, a couple of local guys, great guys, local to the market, r- really good guys. And they will be partners with us and they will put up more equity than their interest. In other words, they'll put up, let's say, 60% of the equity for 50% of the deal. And after that, it's heads up. So, and, and it's still, uh, it's a very good opportunity for them, but it helps us get to, it diminishes our risk somewhat. Yep. Certainly it, it helps us get to uh, an internal rate threshold that we're accustomed to, which 
on paper. Yeah. We hadn't gotten there. <laughs> we hadn't gotten there at the <laughs> bank yet, but on paper. And so, you know, it construction costs, and, and they're, we're in the home building business too. I, and so you understand the trap that, that's there. I mean, early on when, when prices, when construction prices really started to soar, um, we had no protection. We pre-sell virtually everything. Yeah. So we had no protection in our contracts um, on, on material increases or, or labor increases. Uh, we do now. But that's, that's not comfortable for the, the home buyer. Right. And I get it. But every, everybody, all builders are having to do that yep. today. So the, there are a lot of ramifications to inflation. One of your risks uh, or one of your com com competitors would be a new hotel to the market. But in the recent, call it last decade, there's been a small company called Airbnb come up and short-term rentals are coming up. People are opting to stay in other folks' homes rather than you know, stay in hotels. Is that putting a dent in your business? Is it something you think about? Is it two totally different markets? Who's renting a Hampton Inn versus who's staying in a home? Like, what do you think about this kind of rise of the short-term rental owner? We may have to have another podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this um, is the last big segment, so let's just kind of riff on it. It's market-dependent, in my opinion. Yeah. Airbnb is now, I think, the largest hotel booking company in the country mm. hotel hotel booking company Wait, booking hotel what, rooms really yep I mean, their model has has morphed and evolved mm. but i think in terms of impact on us it varies market to market and there are a number of cities that have taken proactive steps um, because they don't want affordable housing to be diminished by uh, third-party or short-term uh, uh, rental companies, they don't want that that inventory taken out of uh, out of the marketplace. They are, I think, also aware that lodging, as we've known it historically, is important to certain uh, communities that 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 those properties remain healthy. So there have been a lot of municipalities that have taken proactive steps to um, limit, I guess you would say, uh, the, the uh, short-term rental market. Yeah. Charleston, South Carolina is a good example. And, and the diff you know, different municipalities have taken different steps. But are they a competitor? Absolutely. Um, it, and it does vary market to market. Uh, they don't, they, their struggle today because of their critical mass is consistency of delivery um, and um, keyless entry, which some of the, the major hotel companies have gone to. So, they, I mean, they have their challenges, but they're, they're a huge supplier. Yeah, and, and 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 you probably know this. I mean, it's not just Airbnb, but they they are uh, leasing blocks of apartments 
and and new apartment projects uh, in downtown Greenville in urban settings. And so they're running that block of apartments as as you would a hotel, basically. It's interesting. It is interesting. And, you know, I think we call it Airbnb for, for now, but I, I, uh, in several municipalities, I just thought it was important that that foothold not get to be so strong that it would it would reduce a hotel's ability to have the uh, revenues to stay fresh, crisp, um, attractive to guests. Um, and I think that that many municipalities understood that because it takes we we set aside five percent of our revenues just to reinvest. We we build, as I've said earlier, for a long-term ownership. That takes constant reinvestment. We reinvest in our hotels well ahead of brand requirements. Yeah. We because we if we built them to own long term. Well, if you reduce income, you reduce, and one of the things you reduce is your ability to do that. And so, no great city wants their hotel inventory to be tired and worn and and um, not as attractive to out of town. Folks, so, and and I think that the the direction of hotels, uh, not not just in in reaction to uh, the Airbnbs, but um, is to be more of a destination, to have more activity, be it lobby activity. Like the hotel we're working on right now has a really good. Cool, it'll have a really cool coffee bar. It'll have a two bars, music, two uh, food and beverage. Venues, so it, it is, and rooms, it, it it's more a destination than a contained destination, if you will, than the short-term rental companies can be. Yep. Um, one quick question. Does that make, it makes Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you said you know the the scale you're seeing now, especially in a world where labor's tight and you know service providers' costs are going up. I saw something the other day where, you know, they're charging three or $400 for a night for the house. The cleaning fee alone is $250 on top of it. I mean, you, you stack right. all the fees up on an Airbnb and it's more in fees and everything else than you paid to actually rent it. Exactly. That's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. I tell you what, I mean, what you just touched on and it's for us. I, I said the other day, I never thought that we would be looking harder for employees than guests and that's almost the truth yep. um and so it yet our our ability to employ almost every market we're in we have multiple hotels and so um our efforts to uh to procure uh, employees can be a little more uh, refined and focused than uh, the Airbnbs can, but yeah, the, 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 the cleanup, the cleaning charges can be astronomical. Yep. And, and, and you don't know what you are going to get, uh, until you get there. Really? That's my experience. Yep. I got kind of one more question for you. You already touched on it. Easy. It's easy. I'm going to throw you a, a I'm going to throw you a, a, a change up here, just 50 <laughs> miles an hour, right down the center. <laughs> and tell me ahead of time that it's going to be that. 
That's important. <laughs> you, you said that you do heads up deals. And I'll be honest, right. in today's finance world, that's almost unheard of. It's always been unheard of. Why do you do it is the first question. And what do you look for in a partner that matters? You've seen, you've probably seen a lot of partnerships over your time. Um, and you've, it sounds like you've ended up with the partners that you deserve, which are, are great folks that have stuck with you. But let's just talk about partnerships to bring it home. What, why have you chosen Heads Up Partnerships? So I told you early on that I started an NASD broker-dealer back in the late 70s. And it was at the request, really, of a company that was doing um, Section 8 housing and, and, and evolved into Farmers Home 515s which were tax shelters. Out of that uh, effort, I also did a couple of other things. Um, I was always invested, Chris, as my partner. I was a limited partner investor on the same basis as those who I was selling to were, if you follow that. so. Yep. But I, I strayed, so we did a couple of restaurants. We did an oil and gas deal. We did an equipment leasing deal. And those didn't all work out like I had hoped or expected. And out of that, I developed um, a feeling, a sense, that it was a whole lot more painful, unpleasant, I could describe it in a lot of different ways to lose somebody's money for them than to lose your own money. Mm. So I would, I would much rather lose my money on my decision than come to Chris powers and say, Chris, I got this deal that I think's good. You invest and it goes bad. So there was a long, there was a period starting probably 83 or so, as I said, when sort of the rumor of the 86 reform act gutted, uh, what, what we were primarily selling, which was tax shelters. Well-designed, really. I mean, that was it's a shame that program ran away because it, it incentivized uh, high net worth investors to invest in, create, and provide housing for the less privileged, but it did. And so there was a period that, that we really didn't have partners. I wasn't soliciting partners. When I started developing hotels, the first one, the one in Jackson Hole, I mean, these were my three, three buddies. That was different. I mean, I just went to them and said, look, we have this opportunity. But when I started to do it again, when I started developed my first one, I did not want the burden or the responsibility, um, if you want to call it that, of having the deal not work out and the guy who's, who put up his money was not a part. He, he made the decision to invest, but he he invested because of Bo. Um, I, I didn't want it; wasn't worth it to me. Yeah. And I needed partners from the outset. Had I been able, had I had the capital to do it all by myself, it would have been different. But I needed partners when I started, for sure. And we still have partners today, and basically the same ones. Um, it now Woodsboro makes a development fee which they earn, and, um, and we have a hotel management company that I have an interest in, I mean, very competitive in their pricing. So there, there's some benefit, if you will, beyond 
uh, the investment. But in terms of the investment, I'm invested on the exact same basis as my partners, and it is because that's the way I wanted it. I have some I have some younger guys in the office that think we need to change the model, and they'll have a chance to do that maybe one day, but not not with. I, Look, it's been a great business for me. I've enjoyed it. It still stimulates me. My partners are my friends. If it goes, if the deal doesn't work out, I lose money just like they do. And we've never had that experience until COVID. So we had, you know, we had a couple of, uh, I learned a new term, Chris. You'll like this, you know. You understand what a pay down, when a bank calls you and says you got you need to pay this down. But I'd never heard the term remargining. So I now know what remargining is. So we we had a couple of hotels financed with a large bank. And six months into COVID, um our debt was maturing. Had not matured, but was maturing just in in months. And so remargining <laughs> means paying down the debt. So we had some significant capital calls on a couple of hotels. Um, and I would say it was a whole lot easier to to make those calls on my partner when they knew I was putting up my share just like they were putting up their share. Right. I love it. I'm not I don't mean it in any sort of pure way or that's just been my approach to it. That's how you do it. Last one. I said that was the last one, but if you could go you back, lied. I'm I'm 35 years old. If you could go back and tell your 35 year old self some words of wisdom that you've learned along the way, what might you tell him? I would say there ain't no free. I tell the guys that there's nothing free. It may seem free at the time. I don't care what it is. There's a price to pay. Yep. It may be today or it may be tomorrow. The other thing I said earlier, and I believe it is, is good times make for bad decisions. So when times are good, prepare for the bad times. When times are bad, prepare for the good times. And the trouble is, as we talked earlier, in, in, in downturns, it's having a sense of when things will start moving in the right direction again. But that's when the opportunity, you know, that's when the greatest opportunity exists. So good times make for bad decisions and there ain't no free. I love it. All right, Bo, thank you for being so generous with your time today. This really was great. I, I enjoyed it. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And tell John, tell John to get his name on the bottom <laughs> next time. We will. <laughs> All, right. All right. See you, buddy. Bye, Bo. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.